Thanks for downloading this Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For more information on the centre, go to ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, a recording from the medical training, student experience and the transmission of knowledge circa 1800 to 2014 symposium, which took place in the UCD Humanities Institute in October 2014. The symposium was organised by Laura Kelly of University College Dublin and was generously supported by the Irish Research Council and the Wellcome Trust. Podcasting was by Real Smart Media. In this episode, a recording from Panel 2, Student Culture and Experience. The paper, The College President Called Us My Americans, Everyone Else Called Us The Yanks. The GI Bill and American Medical Students at University College Galway, 1946-1966, to was given by Jackie Akinna of NUI Galway. Thank you. Um, I should say, just in following on from, from Dora's point there, um, I am completing a book at the moment, a, a biography. I would have loved to have gone straight into this after my thesis, but you get offered a job, you can't turn it down. So I had to write this book, and when that's done, this is what I want to come back to. So it's nice to have a chance to present. This um, project came really as a result of my own, um, another project that I was commissioned to do, a, a book, an oral history of the National University of Ireland Galway, or UCG as it was. And in the course of doing my uh, work, my research on that project, I came across this group of American students who'd come to study medicine at UCG. So it's from that book, that book on the oral history of UCG, that this paper uh, originated. So... um, It has been described as one of the most significant pieces of legislation ever produced by the US federal government, and it impacted the United States socially, economically, and politically. Um, The Servicemen's Readjustment Act uh, of 1944, commonly known as the GI Bill of Rights, was designed to provide recently demobbed members of the American Armed Forces with the opportunity to avail of a wide range of educational opportunities, with the fees for such courses and the associated living and subsistence uh, costs paid for by a grateful U.S. government. It was a radical piece of legislation and it marked an equally radical departure in U.S. social policy. Um, Quite apart from the financial ramifications of the bill, which I'll discuss shortly, there are many who question the concept of sending battle-hardened veterans to colleges and universities, a privilege then reserved for the rich, and not just the rich, but the white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant rich. African-Americans, Hispanics, Catholics and Jews, more often than not, never made it to college. But despite their differences, all agreed that something had to be done to help veterans assimilate uh, into civilian life. Much of the urgency stemmed from the desire to avoid the missteps uh, which had followed the First World War, when discharged veterans got little more than a $60 allowance and a train ticket home. As a result, during the Great Depression, which followed, many veterans found it difficult to make a living and endured great hardship Congress had tried to intervene, but with limited resources at its disposal, the specific targeting of veterans for additional support proved impossible to implement. So 55 million had died in the course of World War I, and returning veterans were simply happy to have survived, and home alive in 45 was a a regular cry at the time, uh, another ship returning home. The return of millions of veterans from World War II gave Congress, therefore, a chance at redemption and a chance to give veterans what they had never really had before, a government-sponsored chance of a future. But the GI Bill had far greater implications. It was seen as a genuine attempt to thwart a looming social and economic crisis, and some saw inaction as an invitation to another depression. So the Senate approved the final form of the bill on June 12th, 
Um, and the House followed on June 13th. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, as we see here, signing it into law on June 22nd, 1944. So even in advance of the war, as, as, as we would know it, it, completing, they were already thinking ahead. The Servicemen's Readjustment Act included the following. The government would subsidise tuition, fees, books and educational materials for veterans. Veterans, critically, were free to attend the, inst the educational institution of their choice and colleges were free to admit those veterans who met their admission requirements. So it became a major, a major um, success in the US. Uh, veterans prepare for your future through educational training. Um, shall I go back to school? These are the sort of pr promotional uh, um, materials that were produced at the time. Um, within the following seven years, approximately 8 million veterans uh, received educational benefits. Of that number, um, approximately 2,000—sorry, uh, 2.3 2 million attended colleges. Um, <clears throat> sorry, 2.3 million attended colleges and universities. 3.5 million received school training, and 3.4 received on-the-job training. By 1951. And this act had cost the government approximately $14 billion. And thanks to the GI Bill, millions who would have flooded the job market instead opted for education. In the peak year of 1947, veterans accounted for 49% of college admissions. By that time, the original GI Bill ended on July 25, 1956. 7.8 million of 16 million World War II veterans had participated in an education or training program. For the American colleges and universities, the effects were transforming. In almost all institutions, classes were overcrowded. Institutions required more classrooms, laboratories, etc. New building programs were established, new vocational courses were added, and teaching staffs enlarged. However, the, the, sorry, furthermore, the student population was no longer limited to those between the ages of 18 to 23. The veterans were older, eager to learn, and had a greater sense of maturity in comparison to the usual student stereotype. Finally, and most significantly, the idea that higher education was the privilege of a well-born elite was finally shattered. But how did UCG become a certified colleges for the purposes of the GI Bill? Well, with the American colleges literally bursting at the seams, and with the medical schools in particular receiving 40 applications for each available college place, the Veterans Association had a real problem. Its solution was to undertake an extensive examination of university, universities in other English-speaking countries which were prepared to offer places to veterans who are eligible for GI Bill funding. As a result, universities in Canada, the UK and Ireland were contacted and invited to apply for accreditation as approved colleges. The response from the academic community was mixed and varied. The situation at UCG and in the Irish universities in general was very different to the position in the United States. In Ireland, third-level education had largely stagnated during the war years. The student population of UCG in 1945, for example, was less than 700, with the medical faculty admitting approximately 20 to 30 students per year. You can see the statistics there. It was very, very small in comparison. However, what it lacked in numbers, it certainly made up for in practical clinical experience offered, an excellent pupil-teacher ratio and a dedicated teaching staff. In addition, the college had the distinct advantage that the training hospital in which the students did their clinical training was quite literally at the door of the university, or more correctly, directly across the road from it. 
Um, when the American Board of Assessors from the VA came to evaluate the British and Irish colleges, this was one of the critical factors in them making their decision, the direct proximity of the hospital literally across the road from the university. But it was also the case that while the Americans were promising students who were well-resourced and highly motivated, there was still a distinct sense in many Irish and British universities that the last thing they wanted was a group of brash American students invading their hallowed halls. No disrespect intended to all our American friends. Indeed, so loath were many British universities to try and attract the American GIs that they made really no effort to woo the Board of Assessors when they visited their medical schools. The reasons for for this were many and varied, but in the case of Britain, there was certainly a sense that for the duration of the war, they'd seen quite enough of American GIs who were, in that time-honoured phrase, overpaid, oversexed, and over here. However, in addition, it was also the case that historically the numbers of American students admitted to universities in Britain and Ireland were controlled with embargoes in place. At the University of Edinburgh, for example, in the 1860s, only five American students could be admitted to the university in any one year on the grounds that the academic standards of these students were considered to be inferior to those of British students. Similar embargoes existed in many of the brother British universities. University College, go- oh yeah, this is the BA BCom class of 1943 in its entirety. So you see what we were dealing with here. Um, However, University College Galway, on the other hand, in the person of President Monsignor de Brune, who's the one on the extreme left there, saw things very differently. In his eyes, these Americans were just the new blood, the university, and particularly the medical faculty, desperately needed. There had been at least two previous attempts since the founding of the college in 1848 to close the medical school, and indeed there was to be one more in 1959. But the college had held on to its medical faculty and as a result had trained generations of doctors who would go on to practice in the west of Ireland. The financial incentive was certainly a major factor in the president's enthusiasm for persuading the US Board of Assessors that UCG was a suitable college uh, for the uh, to, to uh, for suitable college for them to send their GI medical students to. The president also realized and this was a critical point that as medical students specifically these were not the typical undergraduate usually from very wealthy backgrounds who t- traditionally come to Europe for an education. They all, for example, had already graduated with a degree in science, which was a prerequisite for admission to most American medical schools. In addition, they were a good deal older and more mature than most students beginning pre-med. These were men who had seen years of active combat during the war. Most had seen their comrades, some of them at least, die in battle. Uh, They'd lost colleagues, and for them, getting to to college was the fulfilment of a dream to become a doctor. And there was also an affirmation that they had made it through a terrible war, they were still alive, and they had a whole new life and career ahead of them. These then were not men who would take a relaxed view of college life. On the contrary, they were coming to college to work and to make the best possible use of the educational opportunity which had been afforded them under the terms of the bill. The president then was anxious to make a good impression on the visiting assessors, and as one professor involved in the process remarked, these people were taken seriously when they came here. They rolled out the red carpet for them. Unsurprisingly, therefore, the medical faculty at UCG received a ringing endorsement from the assessors, and the first students began to arrive in the 1947-48 academic term. 
Now, the gentleman here beside Monsignor de Bruyne, um, just directly to his right, is, is important because the procedure was, was for coming was quite simple. The individual student had to first uh, apply for approval for GI Bill funding. They then had to apply to a university, an approved university, who would then forward a letter to the VA offering a place to the student. Once the formality was agreed, the student's fees would be paid directly to the university concerned and the student would present himself to begin his course. Um, in monetary terms, the arrangement, the arrangement with UCG was an extremely beneficial one, but it also benefited the US government and the students themselves. In the late 40s and early 50s, courses for medicine were an average of £78 in their entirety. The equivalent course in the United States would have cost $2,500. In the mid to late 40s, subjects cost £1 per year per subject, £2 for practical subjects. That means anywhere you have to do lab work. Students benefited from the GI Bill, were allowed a maximum of $500 per year in fees and expenses, and even with the cost of transatlantic travel and accommodation, the American students were still left with a considerable amount of disposable income. Um, this is how one student came. He had applied for VA. He asked, could he go to Galway? And Father Sennon said, should you arrive, baggage in hand, you would be assured of an old-fashioned Irish welcome. And on that basis, he packed his bag and came across the, uh, the Atlantic. Um, at the same time that he had arrived, apparently, his parents had received a telegram saying, we have no room at this university. So there were mixed messages. He did graduate in the end. That's, that's a whole other student. Um, but um, it was certainly the case that both in the United States and in Galway, there were those um, who believed that the, 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 that American GIs, uh, ex-military men, had no place in academia. Um, many had been quite sniffy about that, in fact, uh, at the time of the, of the bill, and there was a lot of resistance to it. But the American students quickly dismissed the myth that they couldn't settle into an Irish university. And this is to the credit of the president, Monsignor de Bruyne, and the professor of medicine, this gentleman, Professor uh, Stephen Shea, who were prepared to work with the Americans and give them the benefit of the doubt. And as a result, what happened in that university, I think, created an extraordinary bunch of doctors who, to this day, return to Ireland and become mentors for others. Because for the GIs, perhaps even without knowing it, they began to challenge the traditional style of classroom teaching in a way that made life somewhat disconcerting on occasion for the professors. Um, as one GI put it, um, the professors liked us because we demanded that they give us very, very substantial answers and responses to our questions. We weren't bought off with the pacifiers. We wanted some meat and potatoes with our education. Um, and they were certainly very good students. Studies revealed that veterans earned better grades than traditional students, and interestingly, married veterans outperformed single ones, and many of them did actually arrive with their wives, so it was quite, a, quite an expedition for them, an adventure. And, in all, and though it all often meant a great deal more work for them, academic staff praised the veterans on the grounds that, quote, they have that one priceless quality, that which is the answer to every teacher's prayer. They want to learn. Um, but firstly, they had to settle in, and this is the place they were settling into. This is Main Street, Galway, 1950, a hub of activity, as you can imagine, <laughs> just alive. And that's it in colour, but the reality was much more <laughs> Uh, in the west of Ireland, pretty really gloomy. There was a total of one coffee shop in Galway in 1950 called Leidmans. 
and um, there were two girls working in Leidens called the Lovely Leidens, um, both of whom married American GIs and ended up being transported out. But that's a whole other story. Okay. Um, this is the other aspect of the college that they would have found a little bit strange. There were obviously lots of brothers studying there as well. Um, socially, um, it was a wild place. Here's a bunch of medical students at a Cayley in late 1950s guy. It was all very, very different and on a very different scale to what they would have experienced. This is one of the first of the groups of American students. The women, obviously, are not. There was all men who came. Um, uh, but they loved uh, their time in Galway and loved the antiquity of the university, I think. But they were very different. If you can see, read this advertisement which appeared in the Connacht Tribune, here, this, the first one here, situations vacant, cook some light housekeeping for eight American students, private home, references required, wage open. So this is eight of them sharing a house, hiring a cook to actually look after them and do some light uh, housework. They basically... When they arrived to settle in, um, they had to find suitable accommodation. They found their cooks and their, their housekeepers. Uh, but one of the first things students needed to know about when they arrived was the dates of the academic terms in order to book their return passage to the US, which generally took place on, on ships. And this is what happened when they tried to do this. I went in to see the professor of medicine and asked him, could you tell us when school ends? Well, he said, about June 15th, people start leaving. By the 21st, they're pretty much gone. By the end of the month, there's no one here, so we stopped teaching. <laughs> he said, school doesn't end as such, we just let it die a natural death. And I said, I'm in the right place. <laughs> um, once they arrived at UCG, they made an immediate and quite dramatic impact. They were viewed, and by the population of Ga the female population of Gawi at least, as distinct exotic creatures. They spoke and some of them even looked like Hollywood stars. They had money in their pockets, they were travelled and experienced and they knew how to jitterbug and jive. Um, they were an instant hit with the female population both within and outside the college. But what of their fellow medical students? What did they, how did they view the American GIs? One Galway doctor who studied at UCG in the early 1950s recalled that, quote, the rest of us were just schoolboys, really. We had just got out of boarding school and college was just one big game to us. We were here to have a good time. But the Americans, well, they were older. They were in a hurry to get their qualifications and get out there into practice. So they hit the books with a vengeance. And there's no doubt about it, they made the rest of us look bad. <laughs> the Americans always came top of the class. That is, until the Poles arrived, and then they worked even harder. <laughs> uh, I haven't time to talk today about the Polish students, but again, these were all um, ex-British military. They'd served most of them in the RAF, and they really did work hard when they arrived. But that's, as I say, another story. Um, adjusting to life in university was not easy, especially for men who had been, uh, who'd been officers in many cases, commanding entire battalions of men. One graduate said, to go back to have these men telling you what to do was a little hard to take. But they proved to be serious and very diligent students. Um, it wasn't all hard work, however. Um, the American students fully engaged in college life, joining the drama society, engaging in debates, staring, starting and coaching uh, a new swimming team, and most significantly playing basketball, a sport then largely unknown in Galway and at which the Americans excelled. Now, this is the InterVarsity Basketball Champions of 1950-1953. They are all, bar this gentleman here... Americans, And the guy with the cup is actually um, an Englishman, a former RAF pilot who came to Galway and got on really well with the guys and had learned to play basketball. 
So they're all Americans. They won the InterVarsity for three years running. Um, how they did it, remarkable. They all had T-shirts because all ex-military guys. They went out and bought tennis shorts for themselves. They got a roll of um, maroon, a yard of maroon fabric, and they got their landlady, or their cook, whoever she was, to cut out the letters and the numbers and sew them on to their, to their outfits. Um, and this is an account of their first uh, performance. We ran onto the court and everybody oohed at the, at the uniforms. They were really impressed. And we beat UCC in the semis, and in the final we beat the College of Surgeons for the title. And we brought the cup back to Monsignor Brown, and he was thrilled. My Americans have brought honour on the college, he said. We actually won the cup three years in a row. And how did the Americans take to Ireland? Remarkably well, it seems. Some, though certainly not all, were of Irish extraction. But they found they were very welcome in Ireland, uh, if not by their male fellow students. And they found the Irish way of life, and particularly the pace of life, fascinating, and on occasions frustrating and or hilarious. There was one occasion where they had to report in um, every year. And this is an account by one of the students. In the second year, when we were living with a Miss Clarity at about March, Miss Clarity came upstairs all of a Twitter. The police, the police are here. And I went there, and down and, all, and down, and all in its glory was Sergeant, Detective Sergeant Braden. Where have you been hiding, he said. Well, if he didn't know where we were, he was the only one in Galway who didn't, because we stood out like a sore thumb. And we chatted about it for a while, and we didn't know we were supposed to report in once a year. So he said, I'll have to take your passport. And I said, well, can you guarantee that I'll have it back by the time we go back to the States? And he said, I can make no commitment on behalf of the department. I said, well, okay, what are we going to do? And he said, you're coming back, are you? I said, I am. Ah, well, I'll see you then, so. <laughs> Sorted. The high esteem in which the Americans came to be held was best exemplified by one incident related to perhaps the American students' last practical association with the college, their graduation. In those days, it, wasn't ne it was necessary to book sea voyages across the Atlantic months in advance, and one of the American students tells, tells this story. They set up graduation, and they announced the date, and it was after we were supposed to sail for home. I went into Dr. Shea and said, can you help us? Well, he said, the problem is we have only one set of caps and gowns, and they're scheduled in such a way that they can be used, cleaned, and sent back, sent on to the next university. Then he said, let's see if Cork will switch with us. And he took the trouble to make the call, talked to his opposite number in UCC, and they agreed to change. And we were able to go to the graduation and make the ship. Extraordinary thing. You can't really see that happening today, but that's what happened. Um, there's the InterVarsity Club team on their way to Belfast. You can see how exotic. This particular gentleman here in the trench coat uh, ended up um, uh, going back into the military and serving with the Marine Corps as their medical officer, which he said was very frustrating because looking after a group of 400 of the fittest men <laughs> on the planet didn't give him much to practice his medical skills on, but that's exactly what he did. The medical graduates I've spoken to would never have considered studying up uh, outside the US had not the war intervened and the GI Bill allowed them the opportunity to pursue their studies in a country and a culture which was wholly unfamiliar to them. However, the experience of studying and practicing medicine during their clinical training in the Central Hospital in Galway and their obstetrics and gynecology training in Hollis Street Hospital in Dublin 
in what was for many was a, was a foreign country is something which these graduates believe made them the doctors they eventually became and in many ways gave them a perspective on their roles as doctors that they might not otherwise have gained had they been trained exclusively in the U.S., Many of the U.S. graduates went on to illustrious careers in the States and fulfilled a very significant mentoring role for subsequent generations of Galway medical graduates who went to the U.S. to pursue further training. They have also retained close contacts, with, not just with each other, but also with, with the university itself and, with, and, and are amongst those who are most frequently attend alumni reunions organized by the college's alumni association. In conclusion, um, historians consider the GI Bill as one of the most significant pieces of legislation ever introduced in the United States. In addition to its social ramifications, the bill proved to be one of the federal government's best investments, paying dividends to the nation for decades. Ten years after World War II, the Census Bureau found that 15.7 million veterans had returned to civilian life in the United States. Of that number, 12.4 million, or 78%, benefited directly from the GI Bill. Even more striking than the scope of this program is the evidence of its impact on individual lives. When surveys asked veterans what difference it made to them, three quarters answered, quote, the GI Bill changed my life. Now, whilst the numbers of students who came to Galway to study medicine are minuscule in relation to the statistics outlined above, they are nonetheless significant. Over a period of 20 years, dozens of American ex-servicemen, upwards of 60 of them, came to Galway to fulfil their dream of becoming doctors. They impacted greatly on the college itself, and they were themselves impacted upon by their Irish medical training and their experiences of living here. The legacy which resulted from the presence of American students at UCG was considerable. Their energy and determination ensured that academic standards in the medical faculty improved considerably, although their Polish counterparts also had a great deal to do with that. By their own admission, they considered their medical training in Ireland to have made them more empathic with regards to patients and in particular to listening to patients. They loved their time in Ireland, although they never lost sight of the fact that ultimately it was always going to be a means to an end. But when they did return home, they became mentors and indeed sponsors of generations of Irish medical students and particularly Galway graduates who came to the States to improve their medical skills or establish permanent careers there. The connection with their old college and with the city they lived in for five years remained strong and vibrant. They became generous benefactors of many developments in the college, particularly in the area of medicine and medical research. They regularly come to visit the college, as I've mentioned, to celebrate the anniversaries of the graduations. In short, the GI Bill did indeed change their lives, but so also did acquiring their medical training in a small medical school located on the periphery of Europe. And for that reason alone, I believe, theirs is a story worth the telling. Thank you. Thank you.